Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I will review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week, I am reviewing episode five of Hulu's Castle Rock, a show which, as of today, as I record this, was just announced that it is officially coming back for season two. So last week in my interview with uh, Dusty Thomason, I'd asked, when are we going to hear uh, some news? He played it. He played it coy, as he should have. Um, but thankfully, we didn't have to wait too long. Uh, it, it has been uh, officially announced on Variety that uh, Castle Rock Season 2 will be coming. And for anyone that has been paying attention to what that means for Castle Rock, it, it, it means that I don't expect the further adventures of Henry Deaver or even Alan Pangborn. Um, what, whatever, as I record this, like I said, it's episode five. By the time this is released, episode six will be out, um, which I have not seen yet. I don't have screeners. I don't have any inside scoop. Um, but episode six will be out. We'll be one step closer to the conclusion of season one. Um, but whatever the mystery is, uh, the mystery will be concluded. And the, the show was designed to be one of the, the modern anthology shows um, in the vein of American Horror Story or Fargo. And Castle Rock is following suit, which means that season two presumably will be uh, comprised entirely of new characters um, possibly a different, uh, time period. I don't know. I mean, it could take place, uh, back in Castle Rock's sordid history. It could take place, uh, before the events, um, by a year or two of what we have seen in this season. It could take place, you know, 10 years down the road. Who knows? It could take place in an adjacent, uh, Stephen King small town, because there is nothing to say that it doesn't explore the other towns um that stephen king's main or stephen king's world has to offer right i mean after all fargo doesn't always take place just in fargo um it explores you know surrounding cities and and uses fargo really as a um you know just a, a touchstone for a, a theme and a tone and uh, a remembrance of you know, what, what had inspired the show as it is, but it allows it to really branch off and, and keep the tone intact. Similarly, there's nothing to say that Castle Rock couldn't do the same. And then, hey, let's see what's going on with Salem's Lot right now. Let's head on over to Derry. Let's go explore some of these other towns, perhaps. Um, you know, what's happening on Little Tall Island? There, there's a lot that we could do. Um, we There's a lot that um, Sam Shaw and Dusty Thomason uh, could do. Um, within this, not even world, but worlds of Stephen King. And I am very, very excited. So as I have referenced, guys, my last episode of the Stephen King cast was not a review of episode four, um, but I was fortunate. With, I do have episode four reviewed, by the way, but it's just that the, the previous episode was not... Uh, was not just a review of the, the the last episode of Castle Rock, but thankfully I was fortunate enough to have been in contact with a very gracious showrunner, um, the the one of the two showrunners of Castle Rock, Dusty Thomason, um, who gave me so much of his time. I am so elated that he, like I said, was just so generous. And so if you you know, are someone that, that tunes in the Stephen King cast to just kind of get my thoughts on Stephen King related material and skipped past an interview with the, the, the co-creator of this show, I would strongly encourage you to just 
listen to that episode to, to get some insight into the writing process, in working with actors, in crafting this story uh, that, that seems both fresh and vintage at the same time, and a discussion of just what it means to be a fan of Stephen King, both as a fan and both as a, as a creative type. Um, it was a great, you know, interview, um, and I, I think that it cleared up a lot of speculation and confusion around how much of continuity should we expect in this show. Um, so it was a fantastic episode, and like I said, I strongly encourage everyone to check it out. Um, and this week, what we're doing is we are um, we are reviewing. Uh, episode five of Castle Rock. Uh, but before I get into that, what I want to do, I read, I want to read some emails because I did not read any emails in, uh, the last week's episode. Um, so I, I don't want too many emails to, to sit, uh, in the inbox. So up first, uh, psycho Steve says based on Sissy's reaction to that Rottweiler, I believe that her real name is Donna. Um, and spoiler alert for episode five, which I am reviewing this episode. Um, and her needful thing was to have her son Tad back. Um, this is a reference to Cujo. Spoiler alert for Cujo, guys. I believe that the kid is Tad's vessel, but I'm not sure who he originally was just yet. I now have two options that I'm playing with for the catch. Number one, less likely, instead of Tad, Gaunt brings back Frank Dodd before being run out of town, which would explain all the negativity surrounding him and some memory lost. Or, more likely, sometimes dead is better. I don't necessarily think that Sissy slash Donna took a trip to Ludlow or anything. I just think that it's her wish fulfillment come true and went bad. As far as Henry Deaver is concerned, I have a far out there idea. Considering that The Shining, which doesn't take place in Castle Rock, is weighing heavily on the series, that it's possible that his birth-given surname could be Holleran. I think his shine is strong and that he compelled Molly to kill his foster dad for his an a yet unknown reason. He did mention that he was 39 my age putting his being conceived shortly after the overlook explodes. Holleran in the novel isn't the old man from the film too, so there's a possibility. Now, for this to work there needs to be um a resentful heart and be a runaway or something similar. Lastly, I predict with a great deal of certainty that Frank Dodd has a role to play in this season. If he can come back as a St. Bernard, then he can come back as a person. How's my aim? Thoughts or quibbles? Thanks for reading, Steve. Steve, these are all fantastic ideas. Uh, and I, I, I think that, you know, your the, the, the love of Stephen King is clear in this email. Um, and I thank you for writing in. I want all theories from everyone um i just don't think that we're gonna get to that that requires average viewers to know who frank dodd is to know who leland gaunt is to know that uh donna trenton lost her son tad it's going to require um, backstory to move from back to front. Um, and it's the job of the, the creators of the show and the writers of the show to create that and keep that in the forefront um, and not use it as an aha moment because if they did use this, it would go over the heads of average viewers. And what I think has worked so far about Castle Rock is that it's been able to 
craft a compelling show that if you remove, and even Stephen King has said this, if you remove all the Easter eggs, it's still a compelling show. It just, it's, it's nice spice. It's nice flavoring. Um, that, that, that allows, uh, you know, for us Stephen King fans to, to experience a, a, a richer taste every time we take a bite, but it isn't so much spice that it's unappealing for average viewers. I think that, a theory like this um, is 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 so rooted in Stephen King lore that I think that it would get, I think that it would bog down viewers. That if there was a reveal that, let's just say episode six, for instance, concludes with Sissy Spacek revealing that she is Donna Trenton, you and I are going to know what that means, and we're going to go what? But average viewers aren't going to care. Um, similarly, if if um, Dick Holleran is is referenced and Henry Deaver is 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 referenced as being Dick Holleran's son, I don't know if that's going to land with any weight. Um, so I I don't know. I could be wrong. I just personally don't think that's going to happen. Um, but other viewers, please you know write in your thoughts at Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com to let me know. Um, what you think by this, by the time, uh, you know, we, we all listen to this, the next episode will have aired. And for all we know, Dick Holleran shows up, right? You know, who knows what's going to happen? I mean, they, you know, Sam Shaw and, and Dustin Thomason have been very overt with the, the, the shining reference and, and maybe they're laying tracked for some reveal, you know, later on this season. Um, or maybe it is just, um, a, a very large Easter egg, um, I don't know. I, 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 like I said, I don't have any knowledge of any future episodes. So right now, the the whole Jackie Torrance um, conversation that occurs within this episode, um, I, I don't know where it's going to land. Like I said, I don't know if it's just an Easter egg um, for for fans that are going to get this reference and say, "Oh, I know what they're talking about," or it's going to mean something later on down the road. Um, but Steve, thank you. Even though I don't necessarily think that what you're saying is, is going to come true. I really do appreciate the time for you writing it in. And I do want other theories like that, um, to, to be sent to me as well. Mike O says, dear Mr. Constant reader or din, first of all, uh, let me say great podcast, big fan. I won't lie and say that I've listened to every single podcast, but I have listened to most of them, uh, and will listen to all of them. My work allows me to listen to music, but I prefer audiobooks. Since Stephen King has no new audiobooks, you are what I listen to. The review of It was the first I listened to and was amazed to discover that we had that in common. Not only was uh, It my first, but it was my favorite. When reading the words, uh, when reading, the words tend to blend together sometimes, and it made reading unpleasant when I was a kid. The first book I read on my own outside of school was It fell in love with it right away and have reread it a dozen times or so over 20 if you include the audiobook. A couple years after reading it, I moved to Colorado. Being from California, my first winter was horrible. Shoveling snow and power outages due to snow was something all new to me. During one of the outages, a friend stopped by and brought me a book to read. She knew I loved it and thought that I might enjoy a Stephen King book set here in Colorado. Needless to say, I also fell in love with The Shining as Groundskeeper Willie from... <laughs> sorry, The Shining, as Groundskeeper Willie from The Simpsons would say. Um, side note, uh, favorite Simpsons episode is The Shining one. 
I still remember reading the room 217 during an outage about 2 a.m. by flashlight. Talk about creepy. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, I think I might have talked about this also uh, at, at an earlier episode. I think I did during the, the Shining. But we had a, a snowstorm, a freak snowstorm in October one year, um, about five, six, seven. Oh, my God. It's been longer than that. It's been like eight years at this point. Anyway, we had a freak snowstorm um, in the the, 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 the the final days of, of October. And it blew down all the power lines and power was out for like a week. Um, and that was pretty significant for, for where I live. And um, make a long story short, that night as the power went out and the wind was howling and the snow was following, falling and, and, and trees like were falling and, and limbs were crashing. Uh, my wife and I, we had our laptops and I had a copy of The Shining and put on the laptop and as the, the snow fell and we got snowed in, we watched The Shining and it was an incredible memory that I'll always cherish. Um, you know, I, I don't wish anyone to get snowed in for a week, but being snowed in for a week with the person that you love, um, there are worse things in the world. Anyway, um, so Mike continues uh, saying, sorry, this is becoming, becoming a novel of an email. Don't apologize. That's how I like them. I did have two questions. One, have you ever been to the Stanley Hotel? If you didn't know, it's where King stayed. Um, the last day of the hotel was open before closing for that year. He first got the idea for the shinning while trying to find his way back to his room. He got lost and thought, what if I was the only person here and I got lost? The miniseries for The Shining was actually filmed at Stanley, and the parking area in the back is called the Overlook Court. If you haven't been, they do have a ghost tour as it's a haunted place and have memorabilia from the miniseries. They even have a channel on the TV called The Shining where they play it on a loop. The night I stayed there, it snowed three feet that day. We didn't get the tour, but staff included, uh, there were seven of us and four in our group. We kind of got free range of the hotel and I see where this idea came from. Spooky place. Again, sorry it's so long. So Mike, I have not been to uh, Stanley Hotel. At some point in my life, I would like to check out the uh, horror film festival that does occur uh, at the Stanley Hotel. I think that's a great convergence between reality and the, the myth of what the Stanley Hotel is. Uh, so that's definitely something that's on my bucket list. Um, but no, I do want to check out the Stanley Hotel at some point. Second is, I heard you say you don't like audiobooks. Is there a reason behind that? Do you enjoy it more being able to read at your own pace? Audible.com has allowed me to listen to just about everything that King has done. I've even heard an interview where King stated that it's in his opinion that audiobooks are the best format for books. If you ever decide to check it out, I recommend it read by Stephen Weber, the other Jack Torrance. His performance of Pennywise is up there with the other two who made that role iconic. King himself has read Desperation, Went Through the Keyhole, and Bag of Bones, to name a few. He's also reading his new Castle Rock story, Elevation. Uh, so it's not that I dislike audiobooks, and I apologize if on a previous episode where I said I dislike uh, audiobooks. Um, that's not it. I do prefer to just read, and I don't know why. Well, I, okay. So for the, the uh, case of, of 
doing podcasts like this, I need to read something because I need to be not driving or, you know, working in the yard or in the garage or doing chores. Like I need to be sitting near a computer in order for me to take notes. All right. So the per- for the purposes of the podcast, I can't necessarily just uh, listen to a podcast. I need to be in, in close proximity to a workspace. With that said, so much of my day is spent listening to podcasts. So it makes sense that if I'm listening to podcasts throughout the day, and that is my, at this point in my life, it's one of the, uh, my go-to forms of, uh, you know, entertainment. Why wouldn't I just make the switch from podcasts to audiobooks? And I should make that switch at some point. And I, I imagine that will occur um, down the road. But as of right now, it's not that I dislike it. Um, in my earlier years, uh, there was a period where um, I had bought um, the Dark Tower series, the first three Dark Tower books on um, audio, not audio, but uh, uh, tape. Remember, remember tape, cassette tape? Um, and I listened to those. And um, those were read by Stephen King. So I, I do have experience um, with this. I just never made the leap um, now that it is, um, you know, such a possibility for me. Um, but I, I'm not ruling that out. I do feel as though at some point in my life I will make that jump and I will be a convert. When that day comes, I will let you all know. Okay. Lastly, something you said on a podcast that I never would have thought of was the kid being Randall Flagg. Uh, that's just what I like to call him. Even if that's not the case, I see it more and more. Or maybe Leland Gaunt, forever a member of your quartet, Mike. Who knows, Mike? I don't know what's going to happen, um, but I'm sure that we are going to find out shortly. Brittany writes, hello there. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you, not only for your wonderful podcast, but for being one of three influences to resurrect, for me, a true love of reading. Your voice, your analyses, your humor, and your honesty have been that important to my sensibilities, and I thank you so much for them all. To provide a bit of background, my enjoyment of reading, which began in kindergarten, was snuffed out by a terrible college experience, dragged out and throttled violently year after year by all the instructors who wanted their own interpretations parroted back to them, who seemed to believe their class was the only one assigning dry books to read. I began to skim and forgot how to read, ironically, by being taught how to read. I was an English major who no longer loved literature, a writer who could not bear to read lest she conceive an idea of her own. This stifling, this hunger for the haven of imagination and storytelling followed me past graduation and did not lift until last week. I'm about to turn 27. It had me for nearly 10 years until I found myself binging your podcast and breath came back to my mind and hand carried by your thoughts and your voice. Oh, the comfort of your voice. Thank you. Thank you um, so much for that. And Brittany, just so you know, you're not alone. I think this happens to a lot of us. And I say us because I I don't know if you've, I I think that I've discussed this before on the podcast, but I too was an English major. Um, And and I, I kind of got drilled out of my head. I mean, there was a point where I kind of was taught to look down on, on, on certain books and a genre of Stephen King being one of them. And it just coincided with a time period where I just wasn't as into Stephen King. It was post dark tower and I was getting frustrated. Um, I was frustrated at the time with the conclusion of the dark tower. 
Um, I came around on it, listened to my Dark Tower reviews, everybody, so you understand where I'm coming at with the Dark Tower. But um, part of it was, yeah, being an English major can do that. And I've talked to other English majors, and, and that happens. Um, you kind of get that joy snuffed out. I don't regret it because if I didn't have that training, I wouldn't be able to do this podcast. I, I, I wound up taking all of the analytical skills that being an English major taught me and I'm able to apply it to the things that I love. And I get a deeper, a deeper understanding of the things that I love because I know what to look for and I know what goes into it. And reading the classics did teach me that. So I am appreciative of it. It did meant that I did spend some time in the wilderness kind of hating the things that I loved and, um, you know, but that is a part of growth, right? But it's, it's, it's okay. I think that it is part of the process. Um, but you're not alone. I think a lot of English majors go through that. Uh, Brittany continues, you made me smile again. You made me add detail to my own manuscript. You made me pick up Stephen King again. I've been reading The King off and on since seventh grade, but never with such excitement, such titillation, desperation, ha, until now, because of this invisible partnership between you and him, the author and the avid fan, and more randomly, feminist writer Roxanne Gay, I have found my way back to the haven, or is it heaven? Thank you, dear host. Thank you so much for your time and dedication, your interesting insights, and your love for this author, for you have helped reawaken my own. Love for Stephen King, for Roxanne Gay, and every writer who touches me, for you, my friend, and even for me, for what I think and feel and write and read. Thank you with love. Always the grateful kind and not the Annie Wilkes kind, Brittany. Brittany, um, just thank you. Thank you for, for this email. Um, yeah, guys, every now and then again, email where just turns out someone listening to the podcast i kind of has them pick up a pen or helps stoke some fire that has been kind of going out and i i just really appreciate it i just i I appreciate hearing that thank you um you know i just set out doing this uh about five years ago just because i wanted to, you know, channel some of the creativity that I, um, normally had channeled towards a job that I had held. Um, and, uh, I, I, I just felt like I could do this podcast and I, I had no idea that it was going to wind up affecting people. And so to know that in some way that I have in some small way, uh, reinvigorated someone's love of, of reading, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. So, um, if, if nothing else, guys, l- learn a couple things. One, if you like to write, just go out and write. Just write. Stop listening to this podcast right now. Turn off the television. Sweep everything off your desk. And just write something. Even for five minutes, just get a thought down on paper. Just write. Just write something right now. Um, and two, now that you have returned from the podcast after listening to me <laughs> tell you to go write, Go read something. Just read something. Just read something that you you, you have been sitting on your desk uh, your, or your table, your your, your nightstand um, that has been collecting dust or you've been thinking about getting. Just read it because what's it going to hurt that you're actually reading something and allowing the, the, the words of another writer to convey and, and conjure images and sensations and emotions in your mind and your heart that didn't exist previous to you picking up that book? That is true magic. That is the joy and that is the magic of reading. So why deny yourself that? So go read something. Um, 
Okay, and then Bryce writes, hated reading, like really hated it. In high school, I started cheating on book reports because the last thing I wanted to do was read. Well, I did like reading to a degree. Stephen King was the only author I enjoyed. My whole life was surrounded um, by King. My dad is a huge fan and had lots of his books. As a kid, I would take them down from the bookshelf and just look at them. I remember looking at the cover to the stand and being so interested and curious. When I was 12, I decided to read my first King book. It was Desperation. I loved the TV movie they, uh, they did, so I started reading the book. After getting sent home from school by taking the book with me to read, it was an adult and scary for the school, apparently, and a year and a half of me not wanting to read, I finished it. I loved it. After that, I stopped and didn't read any more till high school, but even then, it was for book reports. I did love the ones that I read and was the only time I enjoyed reading. After my junior year, I 100% stopped reading. I had no desire. My parents got divorced years before that, and my dad let me keep uh, his King books. Not a lot, but a good amount. They stay in the basement until my first year in college where the It movie trailer dropped. I knew the miniseries and loved it. So I had to see this. I watched the trailer and was confused. From what I could tell, a lot wasn't in the miniseries. I watched some video analysis and saw there was a whole crap ton I didn't know. I was interested and wanted to give it a shot. I have a really hard time reading and it takes me a long time to finish a book because I get distracted and can't focus and read way too fast so I never know what's happening. So I started reading along with audiobooks. And that was it. I read it in two months and was hooked. After that, I read The Stand, 11-22-63, Four Past Midnight, and so much more. And now um, I own almost all of his book besides his Bachman and nonfiction and Cycle of the Werewolf. Um, that's $230 for a hardcover. Whoa. And I even got my girlfriend into it. Stephen King has made me love reading. I read every day if I can. I just started the Dark Tower series, and even though I accidentally spoiled the ending of the books by diving a little too deep into people talking about it, but regardless, I'm enjoying it. Even though I would have loved to have had the ending be a surprise, I tend to love the stories and adaptations people hate, like Secret Window, The Langoliers, 1122-63, miniseries, and in a way, the 2013 Carrie, I still love Desperation. Sorry for this being so long, but wanted to show what King has done for me in reading. Keep up the podcast. I love it and listen to it every time I finish a new King book. You do the best out of all I listen to and don't stay on things too long that I can't stand. So thank you for not making this a political podcast and just a book podcast, even though you have to get into politics every once in a while because King does, but eh, I'll live. LOL. Thank you. Um, Bryce is a skate god. Bryce's Escape God, thank you. And I think that you had left a review um, on iTunes. That name is familiar. Um, so thank you, um, Bryce, for both the review and uh, this email. And I think that that's awesome that we all come to King in different ways. Um, and here's another example of why I probably should be listening to, to Audible, right, um, and audiobooks because, you know, I mean, it, it helps out people. And, like, right now, like, with a lack of time, it takes me about a half an hour to get to work and back from work. That's an hour of reading I could do a day just by listening to, um, you know, to audiobooks um, rather than listening to podcasts. But then again, as you guys know, like I do love podcasts. So, um, but that 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 is a really really nice email, um, Bryce. Thank you for 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 writing in. All right, guys. With all that said, um, if you have any thoughts on Stephen King, please write in to Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com. I just want what everyone has to say about Stephen King, all your thoughts, how you got into Stephen King, what Stephen King means to you, what you're most excited about in regards to Stephen King. Uh, 
you know, adaptations because right now it is the time. We are living in the age of the king, the reign of the king, and uh, I, I just want to know all your thoughts, so write into StephenKingCast at Yahoo.com. All right, what I'm going to do now, I'm going to read from Decider, um, Decider.com, written by Zach Dion, the, the, the episode five recap of Castle Rock, so I can lay, um, so it, it can serve as a foundation upon which I can base my analysis. So from Zach Dion's uh, review, Castle Rock being smothered in smoke from an, un, uh, Castle Rock's being smothered in smoke from an unstoppable forest fire and the devil's roaming free to breathe it in. Some of, or some age-proof entity presumed to be Satan 27 years ago by a couple grown men with power. And let's belatedly acknowledge that the time span is equal to its hibernation period beneath Derry. Seleski's heartbreaking Shawshank massacre leads the warden's boss to assess the situation, wishing he had the leeway to be human for a change, but ordering her to take care of the nonverbal human mess the same way her minion failed by any means necessary. Like showing him a wonderfully on-the-nose VHS and letting him loosen some new balances. Don't be afraid to reframe your narrative, a man with the surname Hadley instructs on tape. Um, I'm going to interject. Uh, um, Zach provides a link to, to the name Hadley um, and eagle-eyed viewers will know that um, this is not the first time that a name associated with Shawshank um, by the name of Hadley um, has uh, popped up in a Stephen King work, uh, the, the, the most famous of which being uh, the, the um, correctional officer played by the one and only Clancy Brown in the Shawshank Redemption. Uh, Zach continues, the person you were today when you went in, that's not the person walking out today. You can tell your own story, be your own hero. We wonder for the first time if this might be sinking in and affecting the kid who's about to be wildly out of his element as a free man slash demon. Henry whisks the kid away to the doctor, maybe wrapping Shawshank as a setting, perhaps with a return at the end to lock someone up and some serious mirroring, mirroring between the 91 uh, boys begin. The kid gets a brain exam, as Henry did in a quick opening flashback about his gunshot reactivated uh, tinnitus phenomenon with mystic interpretations like psychic hearing, loved one's doom, or heavenly orders, Warden Lacey's fave. And they respond to one test with specific similarities. Asked to repeat five words in any order, they bump family to the bottom of their lists and slide the colors they're given red for the kid, white for Henry, ooh, up. The red and the white are overarching elemental forces of good and evil, respectively, in the King multiverse. And the less we speak of those two creepy staring men who totally resemble an older Henry and the kid, the better. The doc says the kid has standard amnesia, frowns on commenting, uh, committing him to Juniper Hill, and Molly lets him crash on an air mattress at the yarn mill. After dark, he takes a purposeful stroll to a charming home emanating Shirley Temple's animal crackers, the type of sugary, macabre, ditty Bill Skarsgård's alter ego Pennywise would love. When I get hold of a big bad wolf, I just push him under to drown, then I bite him in a million bits, and I gobble him right down. What follows almost makes Zaleski's shooting spree look like goosebumps. The kid slinks inside, poised in our minds, to attack a happy family, quite possibly devour them. 
like that monster Shirley Temple. But his malicious look gets creased with longing or shame, and the family disintegrates loudly off-screen into a classically kingy case of fatal domestic violence. Open Your Present sounds awfully like The Shining's Take Your Medicine, and a true nightmare how quickly the knife goes from cake cutter to murder weapon. The boys, the birthday boys, Gordy, the bir- sorry, the birthday boys called Gordy as in Lachance, and his brothers Randy as in Flag. The kid resumes his sphinx-like pondering up on the roof. That's also um, Zach. Great, great um, catch about the the, the kids' names. Um, anyway, the kid resumes his sphid- sphinx-like pondering up on the roof, personifying uh, the question of whether Castle Rock is cursed or if its citizens are its curse. Does he transmit mayhem by thought or touch, or is he just attuned to it? These binaries are looking increasingly flawed, as the kid certainly killed his cellmate, but Molly says entering his mind is like listening to the pain of everyone in this town all at once. Among the shouts and cries is the famous line, you guys want to go see a dead body? Whatever's happening, it's overwhelming him. I shouldn't be here, the kid tells Molly, standing back to her, making it hard to tell if he spoke aloud or if she fished it out of his head. I should still be in the hole. We do go back to the hole briefly in Harvest, in flashback with Lacey saying God told him for six nights he'd find the kid at Castle Lake, Pangborn and Henry style. The reason, the stain, the curse on our town, draggling even evil behind you everywhere you went. And when I brought you down here, I was on fire with the Holy Spirit, righteous and so strong. You look so small next to my faith. Lacey still didn't know in his final days if he fucked up, just like we don't know if he was loony for removing his glove and touching the kid's face. At a bridge-naming ceremony for Alan, the show's first visually terrifying dog rises from a slew of Cujo references just as Ruth suddenly jumps into the water. Henry dives in after her, the experience prompting him to call his ex and ask her to send up what's this? Their son, Wendell, before Grandma's mind slips too far. Molly uses her shine to point out Henry's little guy barely has a father, though. The same evening, Henry invites a second guest, the kid, to stay in his mom's garage, where he's drawn to a cobwebby piano. It turns out he can pull off a tune, evoking an innocent child who'd practice hard for a recital. I remember, he says, for the first time. Drunk and vandalizing the bridge new plaque bearing his name, Pangborn, Books at home when he sees the kid on the security camera app Henry set up to monitor mom. What Alan remembers, he tells the kid in a misty force face-to-face, is pulling Lacey over back in 91. Wear a badge long enough in this fucking country, county, guy with the devil in the trunk of his Lincoln doesn't sound half bug shit crazy. He opted to trust Lacey, but always wondered, never forgetting the kid's face. Did I let a monster drive off with a boy in his trunk? Now I'm an old man and you haven't aged one goddamn day. Oh, shit. Pangborn, are you the devil? Kid, no. Pangborn cries bullshit, but he's less concerned with the guy's origins and more outraged as agelessness while people like Al live decades hoping for love and peace only to see it crumble. Ready to pull the trigger in the name of this injustice, he's stopped by some more carefully chosen words from the kid. I can help her. Then a dead-eyed question. You have no idea what's happening here, do you? Alan doesn't, and we don't either. But as an adult Ruth foretold, foretold earlier, it's definitely something 
terrible. All right, guys, with uh, Zach's recap um, out of the way, let's talk about episode five. So after the conclusion of episode four, I mean, my my anticipation for episode five was through the roof. How were we going to pick up where we had just left off when episode four had concluded in such an impactful manner? Now, rather than picking up where we had immediately left off, the showrunners wisely play a fast one on us and bring us back two years where Henry is at a doctor's office undergoing a test, which reveals that he's been suffering from a hearing issue that in the present has been irritated due to a gun blast during Zaleski's massacre. One of the tests, uh, tests requires him to repeat a handful of objects back to the doctor. That makes me think of memory, which is interesting considering the fact that his adopted mother is suffering from dementia. Um, and I believe that this is a, a, a reoccurring beat um, that we see or hear, um, you know, throughout this show, just reinforcing this inability to trust our own memories. We see this with uh, Ruth, certainly, who seems to be just losing her, her grasp on reality and her memories and where her memories are. Um, and we see this with the kid who doesn't quite remember where he had come from. We see this with Henry with his, uh, missing time. Uh, so the, the there is a, a, a lack of trust in the, the fundamental perception of what we see the world to be, um, through our, our mind's eye and our memory. And it's just reinforced in little ways like, like this test here. Back in the present, we have an establishing shot of Castle County with a massive wildfire in the distance, casting the town in a hellish orange glow. It cements the truth that Thomason and Shaw are crafting for this town, that it truly is a hell on earth. And to double down on this idea, Henry is seen walking to the church, cementing religious imagery. In the basement of the church, the new pastor shows Henry the gruesome remains of his father, due to something called exploding casket syndrome? Is that really a thing? We don't see much, but it's really gross, with thick red fluid. Not necessarily blood, just, uh, what, like, liquefied meat? Oozing through the casket. You know, we've already had Terry O'Quinn descending into a mysterious hatch, reminiscent of his famous Lost character, and when Ken Cosgrove showed Henry the casket, I half expected the father to be missing. Shades of Christian Shepherd. Nope, not missing. Just leaking everywhere. Now back at prison, Warden Porter is on the receiving end from her superior. And on my second viewing, I had to stop and rewind. I thought I had a clue who it was, but I needed to be sure. So I checked IMB and lo and behold, I was right. It was Toby. From the West Wing, Richard Schiff, an actor who I love seeing pop up in things, or in this case, I uh, love hearing pop up in things. Now, guys, I I've mentioned the West Wing before, actually in reference to um, uh, Castle Rock. But uh, for those of you who, um, I don't know, liked the newsroom or or like uh, the social network, I you got to check out um, the West Wing. It it might be a little antiquated in terms of its presentation due to the fact that it was produced 
during a time of um, an earlier form of how we viewed television on network television, but it still packs an incredibly powerful punch. And here we go. I'm going to get a little political. For those of us who feel a little down in terms of politics that might need a little inspiration, then President Jeb Bartlett and his staff um, might just kind of be a, a, a remedy for what you need right now. Um, and Richard Schiff had played Toby, um, the communications director for the White House. I think that I got that right. He was the head. Um, he was just in charge of all, all communication. Um, and uh, Sam Seaborn, played by Rob Lowe, was the head speechwriter under Toby. And Richard Schiff, his presentation of Toby, um, he could be so commanding and gruff with such a tender gentleness um, and, and very few actors are able to strike that exact balance. Richard Schiff is one. And another one that I would say is Terry O'Quinn. Um, and to have these two actors on the same show, I would love to see the two of them in the same scene. Um, so anyone listening that has a role in casting anything, please pair up Terry O'Quinn and Richard Schiff. That'd be an amazing duo to, to be able to watch. But this was just a, a nice little cameo that, that I loved. In the Deaver home, Henry is setting up a security system to keep an eye on Ruth. Alan naturally doesn't care for it. I don't think that's because he's resistant to Henry keeping an eye on him. I, just, I believe that he's genuinely offended at the voyeuristic nature of it. His response is, is why don't you just put a chip in her? It seems to be more of a loaded line when you consider the fact that he's referring to dogs. Naturally, on one level, the line reading is, on the surface, a rebuttal to Henry's plan. But when you take into account and the fact that Ruth later jumps off a bridge immediately after being spooked by a dog, you have to wonder if this line has deeper meaning. If so, what are we supposed to take away from what occurs later on? Does Ruth recognize her fate with the dog? Does she see herself dehumanize? and decides to take her own life. Henry gets a phone call from the prison, informing him that the kid will be released, and we cut to the prison where Skarsgård is looking at a wonderfully dated and slightly sinister, though I couldn't tell you why, possibly because of the music, post-prison life VHS. And just like that, he's released to the hellish orange glow of the town, and when Henry extends his hand, I let out an audible gasp out of fear that the kid would shake it. But thankfully he doesn't, now, the question is, why? Does he know what he does when he touches people? Is it automatic? Like Rogue's affliction in the X-Men now, I know that she absorbs people's powers and um, memory and energy. Um, so it's, it's a different power set. Um, but there's always the consistent through line with Rogue that she can't touch people ever because she knows what's going to happen. Does he know what's going to happen? Does he know that he's going to inflict some sort of damage that might manifest in a different way, whether it be cancer or the want to commit suicide um, or go out on a shooting spree? Um, can he turn it on and off? You know, why does he choose to not touch Henry in this moment? And we are then treated to a flashback with Warden Lacey, who sits in the bowels of the prison with the kid on his last day of work. He tells the kid why he did what he did, how he had a specific dream six nights in a row telling him exactly where he would find him. 
Watching Terry O'Quinn discussing the fires of his faith in his youth in contrast to his current doubt, I couldn't help but think he would make for a wonderful Father Callahan. After he finishes his cigarette, Lacey removes his glove, touches the kid's hand and his face. Because he's wearing gloves, it suggests that he knows that touching the kid will bring his death. But why would he do this? Because he knows that he won't be able to keep his secret any longer? He can live with keeping the kid locked in a cage, but he can't live with knowing that, what, the kid will die if he isn't jailed? Or if he could continue to live, that he'd live in dark loneliness for eternity? Or maybe it's just fear that he'd be discovered and Lacey would be found out. And then the scene concludes with another question. Of what the story was that the kid told Lacey when he was first brought to the prison. In the hospital, the kid undergoes a series of tests that determines that any amnesia he has is emotionally based. He undergoes the exact same test that Henry went through at the beginning of the episode and to further connect the two scenes slash characters. At that exact moment, Henry begins to suffer from his hearing issue. Because there is no place for him, Molly agrees to put the kid up in her mill. That night, Alan finds Ruth by the window, looking into darkness, referring to what? The dead dog? Regardless, despite Alan's insistence that everything is okay, she says that something terrible is going to happen. Knowing the kid is loose, coupled with her deeply unnerved emotional state, creates a dread-filled mood. So when the kid starts wandering through the streets, accompanied by a great combo of music and sound effect again, again, lynching in its design, he investigates a child's birthday party. Now this turns quickly, as referenced in uh, Zach's Zach Dion's um, review. Now, is he purposefully causing this? That's the huge question. Now, one thing I should note is that it seems extraordinarily late at night for a, a child's birthday party to be occurring, but maybe it's the first time that both parents are home to be able to celebrate the birthday, but it just kind of seemed a little bit um, late for, for a birthday. Uh, but no, this... What is happening in this moment? Why does he go there? Does he do this to disrupt this family, to, to cause pain? Or does he seek out this family because he hears joy coming from this house and wants to experience that? If that's the case, then what's happening is tragic on so many levels. One, it's tragic because he is in, in need. He's thirsty for this aspect of life that seems to be denied to him. And he is responsible for the souring of all of the good things in life. And it's tragic simply because his presence is causing this otherwise happy moment to descend into bloodshed and, and, and truly awfulness. We then have a flashback to a happier time with Ruth and Alan, with him looking at her lovingly. The dog is still alive at this point. They're making a point to focus on this dog, dead or alive. It means something to our characters, so let's just keep on paying attention. At the Deaver house, Ruth helps Alan with his tie, getting ready for his big moment for the bridge celebration. As I told Dustin Thomason, the showrunner, last week during my interview, I could watch an entire series about just the two of them. Rarely do we get aged romances, and this one is sweet, with two actors that can very much just be in the moment. Henry walks in in a tender beat, Alan resting um, his head against hers. When he tells her how much he loved her, I started to grow uneasy. Because usually scenes like this are indicators that something truly awful is going to happen. 
I couldn't help but think that something was going to happen to Alan that I was about to witness the conclusion to the Alan Pangborn ceremony. At the bridge ceremony, Alan is presented um, by an unnamed sheriff. There seems to be some familiarity between the two. Is this Andy Clutterbuck? Current sheriff? Former deputy under Alan? I will believe so until I hear otherwise. The IMDB page says that's just sheriff. He's unnamed, but I'm going to believe it's Andy. Now, this is a sad and strange turnout with very few people attending, and those that are there are wearing masks due to the fires raging in the north. In the sheriff's speech to Alan, there's reference to Alan's challenges and how they never deterred him from giving everything that he had to give as sheriff. This is what I believe the first reference to be, though vague, to Alan's loss of wife and son. When Alan takes the podium, he gives an anecdote that put a smile on my face because it was a deep-cut Easter egg, not like the one we're going to later get with Jackie. Alan makes reference to wanting to have been a magician as a child, which is a character trait of his that was crucial in Needful Things. This is a well-done bit of fan service. This is a reference that works in relation to the speech he's currently giving, but also complements what readers already know of him. As he's speaking, a dog's barking causes Ruth to jump off a bridge. I'm not quite sure how the two are linked, though of course the dog invokes Cujo, though it's not exactly a St. Bernard. Back at the mill, Molly discovers that the kid has absconded, and as we'll learn, he's with Jackie. Furthermore, Molly discovers a soap carving of what appears to be Henry made by the kid. It appears to be another interesting visual to further the link between the kid and Henry. If you feel that Jackie's in danger, Thomason and Shaw don't stretch it out too far. If anything, the kid's in more danger being in the presence of Castle Rock super groupie Jackie Torrance, who is taking him on a Castle Rock star tours of this haunted little town. Now, during this scene, she's lamenting uh, the present. She wishes that she was living in the past, you know. But the the, the, the irony here uh, that makes you just want to shake Jackie um, and anybody that isn't living in the moment is that if she wants to live in the, the this glamorized past of Castle Rock's tragic history of stranglers and, uh, you know, rabid St. Bernard's and devils that come to town and, you know, steal all the souls of the, the people that live there, She's currently living in a time where the warden has committed suicide. A guard has just gone on a shooting spree. And wildfire is burning out of control. And the ex-sheriff's girlfriend just threw herself off of a bridge during a commemorative ceremony. So it, the, her cluelessness really tells us a lot about uh, her, her character. Now, I have to talk about this, what, her, what happens here. Um... She admits that her name is not Jack, Jackie. It's Diane. Um, and what happens here is the most on-the-nose Easter egg that we have gotten so far, where she makes blatant reference to the, the, the events of uh, The Shining. Now, this is for... This is not a deep-cut Easter egg. This is a very... Um, blatant one and it's like i had initially said with jackie your mileage is going to vary how you respond to it this for me i didn't like it um if anything i if she wants to get a rise out of people by changing her name then change her name to frankie um you know and, and have her be frankie 
uh, Torrance or whatever, or Frankie, whatever her name is, like in honor of Frank Dodd, that's going to cause a rise out of people. But the, 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 the Jackie Torrance of it all, it just, this isn't something that I, that I just felt like the handling so far of the Easter eggs has been so perfectly balanced between not diving too far in, um, down the road of, of, of Easter eggs. Um, this kind of tipped, in, in, in a way in, in, in which hasn't been as graceful as uh, Shaw and Thomason have delivered um, these Easter eggs prior to that. But at the end of the day, it's harmless. It just wasn't as palatable to me as the other ones have been. At the hospital, Alan tells Henry the story of his love for Ruth. And poor Ruth. In her room, she describes her condition in a heartbreakingly clear way. It's like someone opened the book, tore out all the pages, and rearranged them. Now, we have all seen Alzheimer's and dementia depicted on screen before, but many of us have never lived with it. Um, For the affliction to truly take hold, it takes brief, shining moments like this that sink deep into our minds. Now, this scene allows Spacek to deliver a brief, haunted, pained, guilty performance, and Henry watches in helplessness, And his own guilt as he realizes that he's kind of been a dick all these years, abandoning her and mistrusting the former sheriff who has stood by her and taken care of her when he himself, Henry, chose not to. Um, The same former sheriff who currently holds her hands in his own and weeps softly. It's a short scene, but it's effective with the three actors each knowing which notes they need to hit. Molly returns to the mill to find the kid on the roof lit by the wildfires, soaking up all the thoughts in town, and what? Sending out his evil vibes? As Molly approaches, she uses her own shine abilities of empathy to take in his thoughts. It proves overwhelming for our psychic, who can't sort out any truth or hum- or humanity among the noise. As he heads home, Henry speaks with his ex-wife about his son, who we're hearing about for the first time, coming to visit so he can remember Ruth before she fades away from her own memories. He finds that he isn't alone as Molly is there and tries to warn him about uh, the kid because as she says, there's something very wrong with that kid. And then Henry completely ignores her diagnosis. He takes the exact opposite of her advice and lets the former prisoner stay at his house. In the storage area where he'll be staying, the kid spots a piano and demonstrates an ability at tickling the ivories. He says he remembers, but Henry doesn't take the bait. At this point, my wife lost it and called Henry out for not asking any follow-up questions. It has been his job to help protect this guy, try and find out who he is. And the exact moment when the kid says, I remember, Henry doesn't care. At the bridge... A drunk Alan throws the the commemorative plaque into the water, and as his phone flashes, he gets a security alert, which shows the kid walking through his property. Purposefully, perhaps? Just as he seems to have done with Zaleski, he stares directly in the camera in a manner both taunting and stoned-faced. This combination is fascinating. It works as a drunken Alan is lured to him in the woods outside the Deaver house, and he admits that he had pulled Lacey over in the night of the abduction and witnessed the kid in the trunk. Here we get the, the specifics around Alan's earlier tragedies of the that the presumed Andy Clutterbuck had inferred at the bridge when Alan references his dead wife. Now, this is good for, for fans of Alan 
um, and needful things. It's fleshing in the backstory that that we know, not fleshing in, but referencing the backstory that we know about Alan. Um, and it, it's for viewers of the show who might be unfamiliar, it's kind of showing why this man might look as pained and kind of worn out from a long life of, of just uh, constant pain uh, manifesting in, in different ways. Um, and here, Alan confirms a big question that had been lingering in my mind since the first episode and says that the kid has not aged even after 27 years. That's a big moment, and that really throws some firewood on the fire that the kid is there's really something wrong with the kid. I don't think the kid's a devil because they've been saying that so much that I don't think that we can really truly believe that, but there's something up with this kid. Something is up, and I can't wait to find out. Alan is vulnerable at this moment, feeling the weight of age and missed opportunity, and the kid concludes this episode with two fantastic one-two punches. I can help her, he says, before asking, you have no idea what's happening, do you? And with that, the episode is concluded with a fantastic shot of Alan in the woods, gun pointed at the kid with the light streaming through the trees. Um, it's a captivating image to go out on um, and, and sets us up for season six. So there are mysteries afoot. I can't wait to continue to unravel these mysteries. Um, like I said, by the time this episode drops, some of these mysteries might have been revealed already or explored in a little bit more detail. Uh, so at this point, guys, that's kind of all I have. There are some Easter eggs to talk about. Uh, Juniper Hill is mentioned. As we know, Juniper Hill is the, the mental institution um, that has been seen most prevalently in uh, It, where Henry Bowers had stayed. I talked about the Jack Torrance of it all. Uh, Zach Dion, in my recap, had referenced the 27 years um, that was made mention. 27 um, is a number that pops up in Stephen King's works um, in reference to a cycle of evil. Um, so it is not out of the realm of possibility that for the last 27 years, there has kind of been a lull in the evil that is now manifesting itself 27 years later. And lastly, Alan's discussion of being a magician. As we know, um, he was able to fight off Leland Gaunt because in truth, he was a magician of the white. Um, so for him to make reference to this, this is true to the character that we knew Alan to be. So guys, that's all that I have. Um, like I said before, if you have any thoughts, please write into stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Check out my interview with Dustin Thomason, who, again, um, gave me an hour of his time. And fingers crossed, we'll be able to touch base again upon the conclusion of episode or uh, uh, season one to talk about all things um, Castle Rock. Um, and uh, if you have a few minutes on your hands as well, a review on iTunes would really help me out. And next week, um, or maybe, maybe even before next week, uh, stick around for my review of episode six of Hulu's Castle Rock. And in the meantime, guys, may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I will see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast. <laughs>